The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 16th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. On Trinity Sunday, the church recalls the limits of what you can believe before you become an out-and-out heretic. For most heretics are heretical on the question of the nature of the triune God. Now, true, there are some heresies that deal with other subjects, as we see, for example, maybe the first heresy uh, in the book of Galatians that dealt with the so-called Judaizers. But there are beliefs as well that a Christian definitely should hold, but probably would not fall under the category of heresy. But the Trinity? Well, you had better get that one right. For to deny the Trinity is to demonstrate a rebellious spirit against the revelation of God. For the Trinity is revealed with such clarity that denial of it means either ignorance, which is possible, or rebellion against who God says he is. As history has shown, rethinking The Trinity comes at the hands of false prophets and teachers, men who established cults that drew nominal Christians away from their salvation. I say nominal Christians because I would like to think that real Christians could not be led away from their salvation. But men like Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormon Church, or Charles Taze Russell, whose teachings founded the the bulwark of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Or back in the days of Athanasius, after whom the Athanasian Creed is uh, is named. This was back in the good old 4th century. It was Arius who taught that Jesus was a created being and not the creator of the universe himself. It took decades, but eventually that was called heresy. So given the importance of this doctrine... I thought that I would use this Athanasian Creed uh, as a guide this morning. Now, normally we would say the Athanasian Creed on Trinity Sunday, everyone's favorite part of Trinity Sunday, I know, Uh, but we use the Apostles or Nicene Creed usually at this service, and at the 11 o'clock service we have a baptism, which has the Apostles' Creed built into the right, so we don't say a creed then as well. Well, not to worry for all of my Athanasian Creed, you know, junkies out there. 
uh, I will be hitting the highlights for you. It is on page 44 and 55 of the Lutheran Book of Worship if you'd want to have it open in front of you. But I'm going to look at the highlights for this creed as it is all about clarifying what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. Well, the creed begins, auspiciously enough, whoever wants to be saved should above all cling to the Catholic faith. Whoever does not guard it whole and inviolable will doubtless perish eternally. Well, we're off to a rough start, aren't we? Uh, such exclusivity, such judgmental language. Yes, those old timers, they really took those faith claims quite seriously. And they really did believe that this confession was the difference between salvation and not. Catholic here, by the way, uh, references the universal or general faith that is believed among true Christians. This is not a reference to the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, the old, the old sort of idiom or joke is that you can either be Roman or you can be Catholic, but you cannot be both. Uh, for one is universal in scope and one is local. But what is the content of this faith that we must believe to be saved? What, what, what does it involve? Well, the creed tells us, again, page 54 and 55, if you're following along. Now, this is the Catholic faith. We worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. Well, if there is one thing, one distinction that must be understood for the doctrine of the Trinity to make any sense at all, it is the distinction between being and person. Now, all language in a fallen world is limited. These were the best, um, the best ways of understanding uh, what we mean when we talk about God, person and being. God is the being. Uh, you might say the proper name of God given in Exodus 3, Yahweh. Yahweh is the being. Father, Son, and Spirit are persons. Because God is absolutely unique, <laughs> I, there's nothing that I can point to in the creation and say that this is what God is like. Uh, people use metaphors, for example, like water. Right? Water can be liquid or solid or gas. Uh, one thing in three ways. Well, that's, that's not exactly accurate. Um, the closest we could probably get would be to point out that we in this room, I mean, assuming none of you are, are lizard people or something like that, uh, but we are all human beings, and yet we are distinct persons. But even that is imperfect because we all possess individual wills, whereas Father, Son, and Spirit all have one will. God has one will. And so this is the basic argument, that God has revealed himself then as one being, completely unified and simple and whole, and also as three persons. These three persons are all God. They are not three gods, which is, of course, the claim that is most frequently made against Christians. These three persons are also not one person. 
The creed says this explicitly. This is what the Athanasian creed sought to make crystal clear. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. Now, one of our difficulties, I think, is that whenever we think of God, we, we sort of default to the Father. And so there's this preeminence of the Father uh, that often clouds sort of our, our thinking and our language. But what are some examples of getting this wrong? Well, I mentioned before the great heresy, uh, really, of the fourth century was Arianism. Now, that's not the, the white supremacy version of Arianism. That's with a Y. Arius was a guy with an I, and Arianism had sort of taken over the church for many decades. It had to be really wrought out. And Athanasius was a great church father, a bishop, who was, I believe, expelled from his hometown, his city where he was a bishop, like five times uh, for fear of his life. I mean, these were very serious battles in the early church. Um, but Arianism taught uh, that Jesus was a creature. He was a highly exalted creature. He was part of the creation, though. He was not the creator, right? And so Jesus was not recognized, therefore, as God, but sort of like a very highly exalted angel who had great power and majesty and was worthy of worship, but not God himself. A preeminence then was shown to the Father, and the equality of the persons in the Godhead was rejected. And yet, of course, there are many texts that indicate that Jesus is equally glorious and powerful, uh, as is the Spirit. For example, uh, Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus, in humility, gave up his, uh, his equality with God uh, in service to us with his death on the cross. And uh, Colossians 1 talks about the, the attributes of Christ and how, how high they are. So Arianism, and its modern example of this would be Jehovah's Witnesses, they are wrong on this front. They simply uh, do not uh, recognize that Jesus is God himself. The creed then goes on to speak of the attributes of God. While certainly not exhaustive, it speaks to these main attributes and notes that if one person in the Trinity has such an attribute, then all three have it. So, for example, all three persons are uncreated, infinite, eternal, and almighty. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. See, this is the distinction made again and again between being and person. The creed affirms that all three persons are God and all three are Lord. But there are not three gods and lords, but only one. Now, the creed does highlight some differences between the persons, and this is where um, debates and arguments and uh, perhaps violent wars <laughs> you know, are fought on understanding these, these differences. So, for example, it says, uh, the Father was neither made nor created, nor begotten, okay? The Son was neither made nor created, 
Okay, that's a direct refutation of the Arian heresy because it said that Jesus was created. So Jesus was not, or really the Son, was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. And that is not a reference to the Incarnation, by the way. That is not a reference to Christmas. Begotten is not a reference to when Christ became flesh. That is a reference to the relationship within the Trinity that has always existed. I think this is a very common thing people think as well, that that the Son came into being. This is, in fact, one of the heresies of the Trinity. The Son came into being when the Son was begotten, uh, and he was begotten at the Incarnation. No, the Son has always been the Son. The Son, remember, we already said the Son is infinite and eternal. Whatever attribute God has, say the, the attribute of being uncreated and timeless, the Son has that as well. The Son did not come into being at a particular time, and uh, the begotten did not take place at the Incarnation. That is defining the relationship within the Trinity, within the Godhead, that has always existed. As an aside, there is a a great debate among Trinitarians about whether that means that the Son uh, is sort of secondary or preferential or deferential to the Father, and I would say no, it's simply describing their relationship. It's not a pecking order. But again, there's a difference in this way between these persons, right? Uh, The Father uh, was not created nor begotten, nor made. The Son was not made nor created, but was begotten of the Father. The Spirit was neither made nor created, but proceeds or is proceeding from the Father and the Son. By the way, that uh, it's hard to it's hard to even say any of these words without stumbling on major controversies. But but the uh, the whole debate around the Spirit. The Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox, they would not say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but only from the Father. The West uh, argues, this is called the filioque clause. It's the and the Son. Uh, The West argues that the uh, Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son because Jesus talks about in these late chapters of John how he will be sending the Spirit. He says it twice. Uh, And therefore, we think it's safe to conclude that the Son sends the Spirit and therefore proceeds. Now, critics will say, aha, well, you see, you're sitting here telling me that the three three persons are all the same, right? And so yet, but then you go on to make these distinctions within these persons. Well, there are what we would call, and this is a technical term, economic differences among the persons of the Trinity, They are ontologically, that is, their nature is the same. But within the Godhead, they do unique things. For example, only the Son becomes flesh and dies on a cross. God, you can say, dies on a cross. But the Father does not die on a cross, and the Spirit does not die on a cross. Only the Son dies on a cross. Well, speaking of Jesus, there is always the most, the longest part of any creed is always about Jesus, because the most controversial aspect of the Trinity is that God became flesh. And so uh, it says this about uh, Jesus, that Jesus Christ became flesh, that Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man, that the Son is equal to the Father in divinity, subordinate to the Father in humanity. 
Well, that explains a lot of what we see in the Gospels that might strike us as strange. Like when Jesus says, well, only the Father knows, essentially when the end of the world will be. The Son is subordinate to the Father in humanity. That's how he shares our nature and can die for us, by the way. Uh, That he is one Christ. Now, many will seek to divide the human Jesus from the divine Christ. This is a very, this is a rampant heresy in, in the, the external church today. It's not in the true church, but in the external church. Uh, that is a heresy that, that, to kind of say, well, there is this human Jesus, but then there is this divine Christ off to the side there. No, they're one and the same. Okay, if you were hanging out with Jesus of Nazareth in the year 32 AD, somewhere in Capernaum, that is the divine Christ. God is there. And if you ever hear someone like, say, Richard Rohr, uh, he's a very popular Catholic priest and basically in the New Age movement now, if you ever hear anyone talk about the cosmic Christ, please run the other way. They are a theological vampire trying to steal your soul. A cosmic Christ, keywords, run the other way. You're watching a YouTube video one day, some guy starts talking about the cosmic Christ, and you're like, huh, Pastor McClanahan never talked about that, and this, this guy seems really smart. I think this guy's on to something. Please, run the other way. Okay, so watch a, watch, watch a video on how to fix your kitchen sink or cat videos or something like that. Far safer. Now, the creed goes on to affirm what other creeds also say about Jesus, that he was crucified, risen, that he ascended into heaven, and that he will judge the quick and the dead. Those who have done evil will be judged, and those who have repented will be saved. And in case you had forgotten the seriousness with which this creed was written, it ends. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing this firmly and faithfully. Well, but hey, in a you know, post-Christian world in which we find ourselves, maybe all of these fine points about God are, are rather silly. Don't you know that even though we live in a world Uh, that is built on the person of God, the teachings of God, the goodness of God, and the freedom of God, we now can believe uh, that we can despise God and construct a world without him. Esoteric notions of a triune God? Who cares? We live in the information age, the modern age, the age of reason and science. We don't need God anymore. Well, but of course we do. The triune God is the only God big enough of all the other gods that have been put forward, and there have been thousands, if not millions. The only God big enough to make sense of this life, be it our physical reality or our spiritual reality. When we try to make sense of the world without God, we inevitably turn smaller gods uh, into idols. These gods are simply not up to the task. So you either believe and worship the triune God, or you are an idolater. And isn't it so clear that as we deny the triune God, our society falls more and more into idolatry? Only God can hold this world together. And only God has been revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit in history, 
in experience, and of course, in Scripture. So what the creed says is true. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing this firmly and faithfully. Amen.